You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. At Accidental College, we were taught that our dreams and our beliefs were all that mattered, that the world would eventually sway to our will, fall in step with our goodness, swoon right into our delicate white arms. All those introduction to striptease classes, apparently each of our ridiculous bodies had been made perfect in its own way. All those advanced memoir seminars, all those symposiums on overcoming shyness and facilitating self-expression. And it wasn't just accidental college. All over America, the membrane between adulthood and childhood had been eroding, the fantastic and the personal melding into one, adult worries receding into a pink childhood haze. I've been to parties in Brooklyn where men and women in their mid-thirties would passionately discuss the fine points of the Little Mermaid or the travails of their favorite superhero. Deep inside, we all wished to have communion with that tiny red-haired underwater bitch. We all wanted to soar high above the city, take on the earthly powers below, and champion the rights of somebody, anybody. The Sevo people would do just fine, thank you. Democracy, it turned out, had the makings of the best Disney cartoon ever made. Jerry Steinfarb, I, I'm sorry, Gary Steingart is the author of the Russian Aravis Handjob, no, I mean the Russian Debutantes Handbook. His new novel is Absurdistan. Welcome to the program, Jerry. Very great to be here. <laughs> I answer to Jerry, Gary, whatever you got. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this morning I was driving my son to work. I was listening to NPR in the background. When I heard the reporter say, and I marked this very carefully, peace negotiations began in 2004, followed by a ceasefire that both sides immediately ignored. <laughs> now, my first reaction was, that's insane. The language doesn't even make sense. My next immediate reaction was, that sounds like something that would happen in Absurdistan, either the novel or the country. And I later figured out that they were talking about the situation in Darfur. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the kind of things that happen in Absurdistan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've spent a lot of time in Absurdistan, literally and figuratively, I think, uh, in the sense we're all living in Absurdistan these days. It's the kind of country where I remember the... I was hanging out with the minister or the deputy minister of privatization in one of these stands, and he said to me, uh, we're so happy. I said, what's going on? He said, we're, we're ranked as one of the 20 poorest countries in the world. And I said, so what's so great about that? He said, now there's going to be all these funds from NGOs that we can steal. It's going to be a wonderful. And then I was in Azerbaijan once, and the uh, country had tied... Uh, the corruption index had been tied with Nigeria. 60% of the economy was off the, off the books. And people seemed fairly, uh, fairly okay with that. You know? <laughs> One of the things that your novel does quite well is you make up use of a rather modern technique that's often used in uh, music and in film, what's called the mashup. Mm-hmm. This is like a literary mashup. And, and what's interesting is you mash so many ingredients together, and what the reader comes to realize is that's what the world is like. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this happened, I have to say, when I went to, uh, in the book it's called Accidental College, but it's really Overland College in Ohio, and I think that was the first time, I grew up in a very classical household, it was Rimsky-Korsakov all day long, and you know Chekhov on the table, and all this kind of stuff, but when I got to Oberlin, where people literally were majoring in, in you know, striptease, and uh, Blade Runner studies, and, and things like that, I was, <laughs> it was just so shocking for me to see how many things could pile into one another, and the thing we were listening, this was 
I started school in 91, finished in 95, and I think rap was the first thing that I heard, which just shocked me out of my little, my little uh, lily white boots. I was just so impressed with the way things could be sampled. Uh, the way uh, funk and soul and all these different things could be sampled and uh, and mixed in with with some very cutting lyrics. Ice Cube, I remember, was the sort of the the hero of the moment back in ninety one, ninety ninety one. So I think a lot of that really helped uh, when I wrote this book. You know, because I did sample so many things. I mean, some of this book can be read almost as a nineteenth century Russian classic. You know. So the language sometimes uh, veers toward that. On the other hand, sometimes Misha, my hero Misha Weinberg, is rapping. Uh, then I'm sampling fake uh, Zagat survey uh, guide, you know, uh, lyrics. So it's it's all kinds of things that I that I love. And you were talking about David Mitchell. I think he's very good at that too. He's kind of a. I, I feel like we're almost DJs at this point. You know, we have our uh, our headphones on and we're we're scratching and mixing, and it's uh, it's fun. It's fun as hell. I want to talk first a little bit about the prose style you have. There's lots of really interesting prose styles. Lists and lists are have, were was, was a very popular prose style for a while. But with you, it's kind of become a shopping list. <laughs> yeah. Well, Misha Weinberg, who has a, a real life counterpart. There's a, a couple of people that I used. Uh, there was one guy I really enjoyed meeting. He was this really oversized Russian, really huge. And he was at Oberlin College, and he was so different from the rest of us because we were so, I, I was, and, and others of my generation who emigrated in, in 79, we were so shocked by, by America having grown up in the Soviet Union. And I think it took a long while, certainly for me, to even begin to have any kind of feeling that this was my country. But this guy, you know, he was, he was licking, he was raising frogs, psychedelic frogs. He was... He was uh, sleeping around, he was really kind of a, a party animal, and, and I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go with this guy. And I, what I did with Misha was I made him more of a consumerist, and he consumes everything. Uh, he consumes sturgeons by the ton, you know, caviar. He consumes uh, political ideas. He's into multiculturalism. He's into, uh, he gets into this nationalist struggle for no reason whatsoever. He's into uh, everything you can find he consumes, including luxury goods, but not just limited to luxury goods. So his little red book isn't Mao's red book. It, it is the Zagat survey to New York, which he's memorized by heart, and which he uses as a kind of prose poem, which he serenades his girlfriend with. So I, I've had so much fun with him. Also obvious are, are the hip-hop influences. And, and one of the things I, that's always struck me about hip-hop is that it had its originations in, in the ghetto, but it's been so enthusiastically adopted by people who, if they came within the vicinity of a ghetto, would turn and make a 20-mile detour to not have to drive through that part of town. So tell me a well, little Misha bit. says at one point, he says, you know, Russia is the ghetto. His girlfriend in, in New York, who really is from the South Bronx, and she chides him for being so, uh, so uh, abusive to his servants. And he, said, and he says, Russia is the ghetto, and who wouldn't live large in the ghetto if they could? And I think a lot of this happened when I was visiting, I think it was Moscow or maybe Petersburg. I think, I'm not sure. But I was in some club, and there was this really oily gangster type, and he was serenading his, uh, his girlfriend. And uh, Biggie Smalls, one of my favorites, was on, Notorious B.I.G., was on the... And he started singing along, and, he, and he's sort of looking at her, and, and they're, you know, he's sweating a little. He's really hot for her, and he starts saying, um, Damn, you look fine, just like a fine vine. My Rolex genuine. Can I take it from behind? Which way you want to climb, girl? I love you long time. <laughs> and I don't think her English was so good. She sort of looking at it like, yeah, it's your schmuck. You know? <laughs> 
Also, you get in here into the what I call the Usenet response style, the email response style. Oh yes, yes, yes. And so, tell us a little bit about how the, how is there an internet in Russia? Yeah, internet is actually used a lot in Russia, especially in Petersburg and Moscow. You have to understand these are very educated people in a completely destroyed economy. So, they they know how to hack into anything at, a, at the drop of a dime. You know, they're just really good at this. The only problem is nobody nobody's employed, or there's not enough employment of any kind that will generate uh, uh, enough income to survive, except for there's a growing middle class in Moscow. So, no, internet is huge. And I, I realize, look, all love affairs at this point are conducted pretty much on, on email, uh, with the exception of the year I spent in Italy where all adultery takes place on, uh, in text messaging, you know, it's SMS. But text messaging is a little harder to get across in, a, in, a, in this kind of book. I'll try with my next book, I think. But uh, emails are wonderful. I mean, uh, look, there's you lose some, you lose a lot of literate quality, obviously, and, and some of the emails in this book are hilariously illiterate. Uh, but at the same time, it's um, it's in a way supplanted the telephone, especially in poorer countries where it costs too much money to to actually pick up the phone. Well, you do have a lot of fun with people's misapprehension of the English language <laughs> in this book. <laughs> but you know, I've I've done some college teaching, and actually, a friend of mine does some college teaching. So some of these these uh, malapropisms actually exist even at very good, I'm not going to name the Ivy League school involved, but I don't want to get her in trouble, but, you know, things like, <laughs> he took me for granite, G-R-A-N-I-T-E, you know, <laughs> or don't hurt myself as steam, A-S hyphen S-T-E-A-M. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these are kids, these are our future uh, rulers, you know. <laughs> Let's ratchet back a bit, and maybe you could give us an idea some idea of the setup for, for the novel. Setup is basically this. Uh, and a lot of this occurs to me when I go back to Russia and I'm about to get on the plane back and you have to have this hilarious collection of stamps in your passport or in this special visa that you have to leave, uh, which um, show that you've paid for your hotel. I mean, it's just so pathetic. It's just very totalitarian and very reminiscent of the Soviet Union. So I always have this incredible fear as I'm about to board the plane back to New York that I'm missing a stamp or something. There's a way around this. You could just bribe the guy at the, at the customs post for a couple of hundred bucks. But I always have this feeling that they're not going to let me back in New York. You know, It's a completely irrational fear, I think. But it goes back probably to when my parents were emigrating. And they were in danger of becoming refuseniks if they didn't get their, uh, the correct uh, documentation. So I'm always worried about going back. And in my book, Misha Weinberg, the 325-pound son of the 1,238th richest man in Russia, wants to go back desperately to New York because he's a big fan. He has, he's very rich, of course, so he has this beautiful loft uh, downtown, and he has this beautiful uh, Latina girlfriend, Rowena Salas, whom he uh, can't live without. And unfortunately, his papa, while, he's, while Misha is visiting Russia, his papa kills an Oklahoman businessman with ties to the Bush administration. So um, Misha, of course, will be denied the visa by the American government as a retaliation. So he can't get back to the United States. So he spends the entire novel trying to get back in. And the way he decides to do it is to travel to this country, uh, which is nicknamed Absurdistan. And it's an oil-rich republic uh, by the Caspian Sea. And Misha wants to get uh, to buy a fake Belgian citizenship from a very crooked uh, Belgian uh, embassy official down there. So when he goes down there, everything is fine. It's known as the Norway of the Caspian. But very soon it becomes the Rwanda of the Caspian because it breaks out into this terrible civil war between two ethnic groups which have absolutely no differences whatsoever. Misha falls in love with the uh, daughter of one of these warlords uh, who had something called the SCRAD, the State Committee for the Restoration of Order and Democracy. 
and Misha becomes the Minister of Multicultural Affairs for the Scrod in this really bizarre plot to get in good with America. And the country is pretty much run by Halliburton and a couple of oil uh, companies such as BP, Chevron, Texaco, ExxonMobil. So uh, Misha gets involved in oil politics and things steadily deteriorate. And I won't give away anything, anything else. Tell us a little bit about some of the places that you visited that you drew on to create some of the scenes in this book, which are both surreal and funny. Well, I think Azerbaijan is one of my favorite countries. It's just so hilarious. It's it's one of these countries that <laughs> the the former dictator Gaidar Aliyev, before he died, he was an old communist party boss too. There's always all these scenes of him giving these immense diamonds to Brezhnev. You know, he was really corrupt. He was always corrupt, but now he's so. Right before he died, he decided as a kind of uh, birthday present or something, he would give the whole country to his son, who looks a little bit like a kind of uh, Middle Eastern porky pig. He's, he's adorable. <laughs> he's so cute. Uh, and he's incredibly corrupt. And um, uh, he was just, vi- and the country's authoritarian. It's um, kind of a kleptocracy. But uh, he was just visiting George Bush, who, who loves him, you know. And Dick Cheney, in fact, a couple of weeks ago was in Kazakhstan, another one of these completely authoritarian countries. And he, he said to the president, uh, Nazarbayev, he said, uh, I really admire your form of government and your economy here, you know. <laughs> Way to go, Brownie. Heck of a job, Brownie, you know. It was really incredible because I think that Cheney would love to have this kind of system for our own government where there's no opposition, everything is controlled by a couple of oil companies. So it was just so absurd. I've been to Azerbaijan a few times, and even people you meet, I met, made some friends, and this one guy kept saying, you know, I really want to kidnap you. This is my dream. Please let me kidnap you. Every morning, I really want to kidnap you. We're driving through a, through a warehouse district, really abandoned. He said, mm, now here's a really good place to, to kidnap you. And he said, well, send Random House. We'll send your publisher uh, a ransom note. You know? And I said, uh, I don't think they're going to bite. You know, my, I don't know how my sales are doing. <laughs> you know? So everywhere I went, and I think there's something about me. I think, I mean, I speak Russian fluently, and I'm... Nobody knows who I am. In one, in, once in Baku, for example, the police almost threw me on the ground and, and they thought I was an, an Iranian terrorist. You know? I had a big mullah-style beard at the time. I may have been chanting, God is great. I don't know. Uh, so everywhere I go, people either want to kill me or they want to kidnap me or they want me to be involved in some bizarre scheme. For instance, once somebody in the, one of these countries, I shouldn't mention which, wanted me to help them steal $600 million from a California charity and they had this whole scheme involving pharmaceuticals, blue jeans, offshore accounts in Cyprus, Moscow nightclubs. It was so complicated that the diagram, I tried to do, draw a diagram for the book, it made no sense whatsoever. And I said, what do you want me for? You know, I'm just, uh, they said, well, you're a Jew, so you're very greedy and clever, you know, you're going to help us. And, and, <laughs> and I said, I, I, I'm just a writer. And they said, uh, uh, well, well, we'll publish you. I said, you know, I'm published in many countries. And they said, well, publish when people will read you, (laughs) which I thought was a great kind of Stalinist line. One of the things that drives this book are the senses of varying identities, national, religious, tribal. There's a lot of parts about the Russian identity, the Jewish identity, the American identity, tribal identities. Tell us a little bit about what attracted you to this idea of identity and how we define ourselves and, and how that how do you manage to make that an active plot point? Well, I think 
growing up, look, I grew up Jewish in Russia, partly, which is the worst thing you can be in Russia. Then I grew up Russian in America, which back in 1980 was the worst thing you can be in America. So everywhere I go, it all goes to hell in a handbasket, you know. So everywhere I go, I try to shed my identity like, a, like it's a bad suntan or sunburn or something. But going back to Russia, which I do very frequently, it's hilarious. You know, you're walking down the street and everyone looks at you and everyone has, I think, just one thought, you know, Jew. I was at a party and this Mongolian came up to me and said, you know, you're very cultured for a Yid. And then his friend said, hey, watch it. There's Jews and there's Yids. And I think this guy's a Jew. Uh, I could be a Yid too. You know, if you look at me from profile, maybe, I don't know. So it's, it's absolutely hysterical. I lived in Italy for a while and... Um, Nobody would introduce me as an American writer because Americans are so shunned, especially in this hipster part of Rome. So I would have—I was un scrittore russo. I was the Russian writer. You know, everywhere I go, it's—it's it's completely different, and everyone wants to draw on a different part of my identity. But I was so lucky to be dealt this huge deck of cards, so to speak, with all these different uh, identities coming to the that I can play with. You know, there are so many interesting aspects of the Russian identity, and mostly I would describe from what I get here. The Russians seem to feel like a piece of paper that's been crumpled, crushed, and put in the recycling bin. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. I think Russia is having a huge identity crisis because it's a, except for the oil sector, it's a country in such huge decline. It's a country in a huge demographic decline. There's not going to be too many Russians left very soon. Uh, the average life expectancy for a man is uh, 59 dropping even below 59 on a par with I think Sri Lanka or something like this uh, cultural output is declining so rapidly in terms of especially the literature it's so sad to see this happen uh, fewer and fewer Russians read books which were once considered on a par holier than the, than the Bible during Soviet times people really lived and breathed books because when you open the book you could find the truth but nowadays the whole idea of the truth just doesn't matter to people so much there's just such a such a need to just survive on a daily basis. The country, uh, the middle class has been so eviscerated across the board, healthcare, education, everything. So I think the identity that Russians have in Russia is so, is so much in flux. And this leads to some ugliness on a scale I've never seen before, nationalism on a scale I've never seen before, which you can also find in Absurdistan. Uh, but, I mean, look at Moscow and Petersburg in the last couple of months especially, but even before that, so many killings. Of, of Africans, Asians, uh, people from the from the part of the country that I would call the Absurdistans, the people with darker skin, uh, killed by nationalists, by skinheads, uh, people who have, um, and the police just stands by and lets it happen. A nine-year-old girl who was half African was nearly murdered in broad daylight. Nothing. Uh, it's just uh, a Kenyan diplomat was attacked in Red Square, one of the most militarized places on earth, and the police stood by and let it happen. So it's just such a sad situation. And this is when I started Absurdistan, you know, the challenge of it. And I still, you know, some people say I pulled it off and I'm very thankful for that. But the challenge of it is dealing with a part of the world that's been experiencing, I, you know, the word genocide is, is overused, but a very slow form of genocide, a very slow form of suicide, maybe you could say. It's, it's, some of it is different nationalities attacking each other, but a lot of it is just a slow ebbing of the will to live. Uh, and it's incredibly sad. And the challenge has been to write a humorous book about it. And I think 
being from Russia and having being brought up with with you know Soviet jokes, Brezhnev jokes. I think this is the major. This is the best way to approach the situation. Is not just to write a novel that's completely uh, built around pathos, which a lot of other very good writers I think are doing, uh, but to approach it from a satirical point of view. You do a wonderful job with the satire, and you take on some pretty heavy targets. At one point, you actually have a chapter entitled "A Modest Proposal," and I think that it's it gives Swift a, a bit of a run for his money, and <laughs> you do you some think. things that are really pretty scary. It's not often that somebody pulls off like ten pages or so of pure Holocaust humor. Yeah, so exactly. exactly. <laughs> no, I was. Uh, I think the New York Observer wrote in a, in a very nice review about how I would be. Uh, I think chased across the Brooklyn Bridge by the the rabbis in, in Williamsburg or somewhere. Um, you know, Judaism was a very difficult thing for me because my father is is a very fervent believer in Judaism and. Uh, his Thanksgiving toasts are dedicated to the creator who, who watches over Bush, you know. <laughs> so Russians are one of the most conservative uh, ethnic groups around. So um, he wanted me to, he sent me to Hebrew school um, for eight years. That's quite, a, that's quite a sentence, eight years of one's life in this very horrifying, very parochial school where rabbis would say, you know, we would be caught, the Russian kids would be caught eating Pork, pork salami in the bathroom because we can't live too long without our pork salami. And the rabbis would say, this is why the Holocaust happened. God punished you for eating pork salami. I mean, you know, complete insanity. And the other thing is, of course, the Misha's, a lot of his travails are based on this very botched circumcision, which happens when he's about 18 years old. And I was circumcised fairly, not 18, but, but in my, I think I was about 10 or something, 10 or 11. The most frightening experience I've ever had in my life, as you can imagine, <laughs> performed in a horrific, well, it is funny now, but performed in a horrific sorry. Brooklyn, Brooklyn uh, hospital uh, with these Hasids sort of egging me along, you know, let's, let's get you snipped. Uh, and, you know, so when, when people say, well, how can you make, how can you do Holocaust humor? How can you do anything like this? And I always say, look, I gave it the office when it comes to this religion. I gave eight years of my life. I gave the best part of my penis. You know, I have... Uh, shit, you know, <laughs> show me the show me the money here. It's a, uh, it's a. Uh, I feel justified in in uh, in this kind of broad range of humor. I think, and successful as well. One of the main people who gets mentioned a lot by Nisha is Oblomov. Tell us a little bit about Oblomov and his influence upon you and this book. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Goncharov wrote the famous uh, mid nineteenth century novel uh, Oblomov. Um, about a guy who never gets out of bed, essentially, um, and who has all these wonderful ideas, you know, all these ideas about, about Russia, about life. Uh, and, of course, the joke is that he almost never leaves bed, you know. Then he falls in love. He doesn't leave bed eventually. There's an unhappy ending. The book is very long, very difficult, I think, to translate it well into English. Um, a lot of people don't get this book. It is a little too long, I think, but it is Russian uh, satire, I think, at its best. And it's very interesting because so many uh, the Russian writers we think of, of course, of Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, uh, Chekhov later, Turgenev in, in some ways, um, Pushkin, of course. But uh, Goncharov, who wrote, well, Oblomov was his main book, but he doesn't get as much mention, I think. And uh, I think it is because it's very difficult to translate. And also because it is satire that's very focused on a particular period in Russian history. But then again, when I look at Oblomov, when I look at the Russian intelligentsia even today, I think Oblomovism 
lives. Uh, there's all these, and it lives on particularly in these kinds of accidental college type places where you know, so much is, is said about how we're going to change the world. I think the motto of Oberlin when I was applying was, think one person can change the world, so do we. And even then, even as a young kid, I was thinking, I, I don't know, one person changed the world. That's, that's, that's pretty unlikely, you know, <laughs> unless you're MLK, you know, and I don't think we produced any MLKs, at least in my year. So I think Oblomov is shorthand for a lot of uh, the failings of, uh, of people who want to do good, who mean well, uh, and who just can't get off the couch. You talked about it, satire, and one thing that strikes me that you do very well in this novel is go from the specific, the brand names, logos, situations, to the universal. You manage to create a something that anybody who, even if you've never had never heard of those names, you'd kind of understand what it is, and more importantly, you'd understand our relationship to those names. Tell us a little bit about how you did that. Well, I think here I was reading, for example, Flaubert's uh, Sentimental Education. And the edition I had was, it was really interesting because it had, oh, there was an asterisk, there were maybe five asterisks on each page explaining, oh, so-and-so was a famous uh, singer in 1848 in Paris. Uh, this and this was, I, I don't know, a foot cream. I, I, I'm, that's not what it is, but I'm just saying, you know. So I'm very wary of, you know, I do try to write. I do hope that, that 50 years from now somebody would pick up this book and not just in a, in some English department trying to deconstruct it, but, you know, somebody would pick it up and, and try to follow along and see, you know, what, what was life like in, in 2001 in, a, in Absurdistan, in New York. So I try very much to, I don't want to go whole hog the way some writers do in terms of brand names, in terms of, uh, uh, even though I do enjoy some writers like Jay McInerney, for example, who a lot of people don't like. Uh, I think he's wonderful, and I, and, I, and I really do enjoy that kind of interface between the private and the public that he does. Uh, so I think in this book, I really wanted... I wanted to write journalism in some ways. You know, I really wanted this book to be quasi-journalist. And, and, and I always joke that I'm sort of James Fry in reverse, you know, <laughs> that I, I try to pass this <laughs> off as, a, as fiction. But a lot of this is really nonfiction. So I, I really, I try to, when I came back from Absurdistan, from these different stands, I had about 300 pages of notes. And, and, and notes not about how I felt and how, you know, what breakfast was like, but just very specific. What, what kind of... Uh, Cell phones do nine-year-olds carry around? You know, do they have a Mickey Mouse holster that they, these leather holsters that they have? You know, hookers running around screaming Galliburton to Halliburton executives trying to get them to, to cough up some money. All these little details, I think, uh, go into this kind of panorama that I that I built around this uh, that I built around this book. But some of it was just incredibly sad. Um, the saddest scene, I think, for me in this book is um, one that that happened fairly verbatim. I was on the pier in, uh, in Azerbaijan uh, overlooking the uh, Caspian Sea. And this woman, who I think was in her 40s, came up to me and started a, up a conversation about how difficult life was. Um, she has to bribe uh, some people to get her son into university. She, she's ethnically Russian. She lost all her money, uh, as many of people did, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then she started to suggest that I by her five-year-old daughter, at least for, for an evening. And the daughter was playing right next to us in the sand. And I froze. There was this incredible sense of panic on my part because, you know, I grew up in this society. Um, and I left as a child, but there's a kind of kinship that I feel to this society, to these societies, I should say now, that I don't feel to a lot of other places. Um, 
in Europe, even in America to some extent. This could be, this woman could have been somebody my mother could have known growing up in Russia. And here she was trying to sell her daughter. And I, I left in the book, Misha tries to punch the woman, which I think is what I would have liked to have done. But then you know, there's so many layers of conflict here. And I, I staggered back to the hotel that I was staying in over this incredibly long highway. And you know, I started to think, what do I do? Do I, do I approach the police? And then I thought, nobody here is going to do anything. Nobody cares. The society is completely bankrupt, completely fallen apart, completely kleptocratic, run by people who really don't care what the citizens, whether they live or die, and who are at this point so in tune with these oil companies, these Western oil companies that are really half running the show along with this kleptocratic elite, that the fate of one five-year-old girl is really beside the point. So this was just the saddest thing I've ever seen. And this is what the writer does. You know, he or she goes back to the hotel room, takes a couple out of van, you know, tries to calm down a little bit, and then takes down these notes as faithfully as possible. What did the doc look? What did the son look as it's set upon the scene? What did the, what did the girl say? Uh, and a lot of this is, is, is fairly verbatim. So it's shocking, but that's what, it is. That's what life is like, you know. This is an interesting topic, your thoughts about memoirs in reverse. Mm -hmm. I, I like this idea of writing memoirs as fiction because it gives you a lot more <laughs> range to do so. You can lie in a way that informs us more completely. I wish the Freister had taken that route to, <laughs> to the detriment of his beautiful loft downtown, but still he could have, you know, could have been interesting. In this book, you have Misha as your main character, but you also have cast yourself as a character, mm -hmm. the Jerry Steinfarb, <laughs> and not a very admirable character. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about creating th this as a memoir where you are essentially two people. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, having Jerry as kind of my uh, uh, satanic, duplicitous alter ego who goes around screwing everything in sight, especially his Hunter College students, and especially uh, Misha's Misha's uh, love interest, Rowena Salas, and uh, getting her pregnant in the end. So I had so much fun. Um, I think I was so tired of taking myself so seriously when, when Russian Aravi's hand job came out. Uh, <laughs> uh, there were all these, you know, I toured around the world and I, I was asked questions about every single topic, I, I, you know, from, from uh, why to, what I think about headscarves in France to you name it. And I felt like such a pompous asshole a lot of the time. Not to mention I realized, you know, that um, a whole new world was open to me and, and that if I wanted to get up on the soapbox, I could. So Jerry's kind of my reminder to myself not to uh, monopolize the soapbox for too long, to, uh, uh, to return to writing uh, primarily and not be sort of, you know, the, the voice, the, the, the pundit about Russia or, or whatnot all day long, you know. So Jerry was my kind of... Uh, and it's so fun to make fun of yourself. I think it goes back to a kind of Russian-Jewish humor. Russian Jews had the best Jewish jokes in town, I think, because they wanted to make sure that they got to themselves first before anyone else could. So maybe this is a defensive move on my part, too. <laughs> There's a lot of fleshy physicality in this book. Yeah. And I have to say that, to a certain extent, I, it seems that this book might like have half... Eric the half an audience, so to speak, because when you get to this, the scene, the circumcision scene, I, 
seems to me that like maybe a lot of women who might be reading this book might say, okay, well, maybe this isn't the book for me. <laughs> Whereas men will read it and laugh. They might be crossing their legs and wincing, but they'll laugh. And so tell us a little bit about the fleshy physicality. Well, I'm very surprised to find that, uh, well, first of all, women read more than men nowadays in general, I think, statistically speaking. But I'm very, uh, so far, I think that's that's the, the trend. Um, there's some interesting trends, actually. There's a, a huge upswing also in uh, African-American female readership, not just Oprah's uh, show, but a huge, huge upswing. Uh, one of the only trends, so far everyone is trending downward in terms of reading, uh, but uh, African-American women, it's a fastly increasing rate. And I was just on the subway, and I saw this uh, 98-year-old uh, black grandma. She looked like she was 98. I don't know how old she was, but she was reading a book called Homo Thug on the subway, <laughs> which I thought was so cute. You know, there was a picture of some gay guy screwing another gay guy. And she, she was all into it, you know. <laughs> What the hell was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, alienating, oh, alienating your audience. Half the audience. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> but I'm very surprised that when I when I go around um, and I do readings and there's so many women, you know, and they seem just as engaged as, as men in this book. So I have a feeling that I'm reaching out to both audiences, that, despite the circumcisions, uh, because I think even even Confederacy of Dunces, uh, which a, a lot of people have compared this to, uh, does enjoy a very good female readership. I think, fem- you know, it, it, it matters that the character, the protagonist, for, for any gender, it, what matters is that, that he's in some ways lovable. And Misha's kind of a, he's a schlemiel, but there's something, uh, I think there's a sweet underbelly. Uh, even <laughs> Underbelly, I think, is the right word. His <laughs> belly is quite large. To research Misha, I spent a lot of time looking at, at larger-than-life men, um, which entailed... Uh, I remember during my last tour through the Midwest, I had a I had a field day, you know, just watching men get off the plane, you know, the jetway sort of rumbling beneath their their tread, and there was something almost attractive about the way they worked, you know. And I was uh, walked. Uh, I was thinking also of Notorious B.I.G., you know, who was uh, quite a beloved sex symbol, uh, Biggie Smalls. He was he was ginormous. I spent a lot of time in Russian banyas looking at overweight men until they. Sort of, Looking at the way they sat down, at the way one breast became folded into itself, and the flaps flapped, and it was quite interesting. Uh, when I was very small, I, when I was a teenager, 12, 13, I was, I was very fat. Um, I lived for a while with my grandma, who fed me maybe seven hamburgers a day. She had survived the, the siege of Leningrad and things like that, so she was, uh, <laughs> if there was food, it, it had to be eaten, you know, to store up for the winter or whatnot. So she fed me, and I became gigantic. And uh, I remember for my bar mitzvah, I had to get into a specially made husky suit. You know, I was just rolling down the aisle. Uh, it, was, uh, it was something. Tell us a little bit about, there's a lot of literary influences in here. And in, from, I feel, Hunter Thompson, Huck Finn, Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. It, tell us about just mix mastering all those people and how you felt about it. Were you sometimes worried that, you know, you might be compared to them or? Yes, uh, favorably or unfavorably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, it's such a stew. It's such a gumbo that I think it's very hard to say, oh, he's just ripping off Confederacy or Huck Finn or, or, or Oblomov or, or Bello, Henderson, the Rain King, anything like that. I think it's just, it's more... The book, I think, to me, it, it feels more like a sensory experience. You sort of get, you're almost swimming in a warm pool of, of facts and information and perceptions and uh, ideas. A lot of ideas get floated around. And uh, so 
I think the very nice comparison that I did like was was with with Huck Finn in in the Times Book Review, because growing up it was interesting. One of the first books that I really fell in love with was was Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Those two books, which I read in Russian, um, in America, but my English still wasn't up to snuff. So I would read them as a child, and very nice translations, by the way, very beautifully done. And I was just floored by those books. I was just floored, even though of course. They were in Russian, so you couldn't get quite the the twang, the Mississippi twang, but I could almost feel the language wash over me. So I think that was one of my first influences. Um, and of course, you know, there's two schools of writing I think that developed in America in the nineteenth, uh, late nineteenth century was I think the the Clement School, the Mark Twain School, where you go around and you list, prick up your ears and listen to the way common people speak. And then I think there's the Henry James School, which is the sort of more elitist social observing going on. And uh, I think I'm much more of a kind of Twain writer uh, than, than, a, than a James writer. Uh, and then I think the major influences would have to be, they would come from Russia. Uh, Oblomov we talked about. Turgenev's um, Fathers and Sons is probably my favorite novel. Um, not a comic or a satirical novel by any means, but in a hundred and some odd pages he he gets, he touches love, mortality, the futility of family love in a way, in, in a way that no other book since has done for me. So I always turn to that. It's uh, probably the most underread book outside of Russia in the Russian canon. Uh, and in America, the Jewish humor, the, the Bellow and the uh, Roth, the, the greatest living American writer right now. I think those two are incredible, incredible writers. Um, you mentioned fathers and sons because fathers and sons play a big part in this book, and, exactly. and it's beautifully, beautifully done. Tell us a little bit about going back and forth because I think that's one of the things about this book was when you're writing a satire like this that's so wide and vast and, and very funny. There's a potential for it to disconnect from the reader emotionally, and you never do that. And part of this is the relationship at, that's at the core is the f between the father and son. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think every book needs some kind of uh, ballast to weigh it down to some particular location. And a book like this is, takes place in New York and St. Petersburg. Uh, new characters come along every, every, every 20 or 30 pages. New scenarios are introduced. Uh, the book is really like a um, whirlwind global trip. So what a book like this needs, I think, and, and which I tried for, and, and I, I thank you for saying that I've accomplished it, at least to some extent, is a very strong relationship between two people. In this book, it's the relationship between the father and the son. In the first book, it was more the relationship between the mother and the son. Um, Russian relationships are very different from American relationships, uh, family relationships. It's, uh, I think, a, a much... I think you would have to look toward the 18th century, maybe, in America, when families were still this close. Uh, where most people grew up with their parents, not even in the next room, but in the same room. You know, the, Brodsky has a beautiful uh, essays about this, about growing up and hearing, you know, lovemaking coming from <laughs> literally around the corner. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very strange, very kind of incestuous and very, in the end, I think, fairly unhealthy relationship uh, that goes on in, in Russian families who grow up in this kind of, um, I think, in the book, I think I call it the glowing warmth or something. I think some reporter for the Herald Tribune who was visiting Russia called it the cloying closeness of the Russian family. There are some things that are beautiful about it. It's really, uh, it's, it's a family unit that, that will survive no matter what, 
well, at least until the life expectancy of 59 is over for men <laughs> and the heart attack and the liver explodes, etc. cetera. Uh, but there's also something uh, overwhelming about it. Um, and I think I try to chronicle that in this book. Uh, the, father figu- the father dies uh, fairly early in the book, uh, but he's never dead as far as Misha is concerned. He's with him all, all, all around, and he contributes to the fact he's the only person that Misha really, really loves. He loves, his, he loves New York, he loves Rwanda, but in the back, all he wants to do is please, in the back of his mind, all he wants to do is please his father, uh, which is not possible, uh, not just because his father is dead, but because his father is unpleasable in the end. And I think a lot of Misha's problems Misha has with his own morality uh, stem from this fact that his father was a person who tried to be moral, but in the end was one of the most immoral people around. This book is very funny. It will make most people laugh out loud in an embarrassing fashion. A lot of it is really raunchy and male humor. And tell us a little bit about writing humor. It's difficult. Well... Uh, I don't know if it's that difficult for me huh? because, to be honest, it's all I know. You know, I, I have no skills. Uh, like, I can't be a lawyer or an aircraft pilot or anything. What I do is I, I try to write funny sentences. Uh, sentences that can turn on a dime I, is my dream, but also that are funny, out loud funny, but also that aren't cheap humor. You know, that's not just uh, having your, your arrows and slinging them at any target that passes by. Humor for me, I started writing humor very early on. When I was in this horrifying Hebrew school, uh, I felt the you know the Old Testament. I was being hit over the head with it every day. All I remember prayers in the morning. We, <laughs> the boys had to say this prayer, say, "Thank God I was not born a woman." And even as, at, at that young age, I thought, "Yeah, there's something fishy about this." So I started writing my own version of the Torah, which I called the Genorah, which, being the nerd that I was and possibly still am, I actually typed up on a scroll sideways. I don't know how the hell I did this. It required so much so much effort just to get this stupid thing on a scroll. And the Ganora was incredibly raunchy for an 11-year-old. Um, I think I was probably already starting to get a, get a woody back then. So I had chapters like Exodus became Sexodus, you know. And I don't think the local mullahs liked that very much, but it was, it was such a great outlet. And I remember, you know, the kids hated me in school because I was this, this it was a very materialistic school. It was a uh, United Colors of Benetton could have opened an outlet, uh, you know, in there. It was very, everything was just what you wore and how you dressed. And I, of course, was wearing some kind of coat made out of a Russian bear at that point, you know, (laughs) which had its own particular odor, which didn't endear me to anyone, rabbis or or laymen. Um, So it was very funny that when I wrote this, this thing, I started, people weren't exactly friendly with me, but they, you know, they took note. I was an oddball, but I was a noticed oddball. I wasn't one of the, you know, a lot of the Russians were so despised that they just sort of, they uh, retreated to the bathroom. <laughs> they didn't, you know, they couldn't interact at all with the kids around us because we were hated so much. By the, this was 1980, so there were all these movies out, Red Dawn, Red Squirrel, Red Hamster, all these movies about, you know, the Soviet Union attacking America, and we were, the, we were these much-hated communists. So for me, this was the first outlet that I had, and I, I said, you know, hey, I can do this, and, and people, people take note. I'm not as hated as I was before. You know. Tell us a little bit about the figures of women in your novel. Well, I think for a character like Misha and for, for any young immigrant, um, the opposite sex, the native-born opposite sex is, is sort of the ultimate ideal because they, are, they will help 
they will translate you into the, 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 the local language in a way through them uh, through a woman or a man depending on your gender or your orientation that's how you will really get to know a country I lived in Italy for a while I never had an Italian girlfriend I had a, an American girlfriend at the time and uh, you know there's something that you don't get when you when you're living in, in a certain place and not uh, affiliated with or not seeing somebody uh, local so I think Misha and also Vladimir Gershkin, the hero of my first book, I think for them, American women are the only way that they can score a sense of being an American or a sense of being modern or Western. Uh, so I think Misha is so in love with his Rowena Sales, his, uh, his Latina girlfriend from the South Bronx, because to him, she represents everything that's good about the world. Unlike uh, himself, she's had to strive for everything she's gotten. Um, and unlike him, she really does have a sense of who she is. Uh, she's not a person who's sort of scattered around the world, this kind of rootless cosmopolitan, as Stalin would call Jews, but she is somebody who is very much a part of her milieu, uh, being the South Bronx, which, which Misha also adores. So I think, and also I think for Misha, these women are a stand-in for the absent mother. Uh, his mother died very early on. His mother was uh, sort of his... Uh, the cultured member of the family as opposed to his father who was this kind of foul-mouthed uh, ragamuffin. So um, I think for Misha a lot of this is trying to replace his mother uh, with all these different women that, that he finds. And women who a lot of people say, well, why would anyone fall in love with this you know, g g gazillion pound uh, guy who, who's not terribly attractive? But I think there's something expansive about Misha uh, that women really enjoy. Uh, there's, he, his appetite for everything is unquenchable, and especially, I think, his appetite for love. That's one thing I have to admit you did quite well, was to make Misha, who at 325 pounds is not going to be the most attractive guy in the world, y you made him really likable to the reader. It, it, it really did successfully translate. You could see why the people around him liked him, and, and it was based upon the way you wrote his interior monologues, the way you wrote his his dialogue. Tell us a little bit about creating that character of somebody we, we really like, and yet who is amazingly rude and, and mm -hmm. often cruel and very selfish. Right, very selfish, very selfish. Um, well, the book expresses itself through humor, chiefly. But inside Misha, you know, there's 325 pounds. So let's say the outer 125 pounds that you see jiggling around, that's the funny part. But inside, there's maybe 200 pounds of intense suffering. Uh, suffering that starts, that traces him throughout his entire life. Uh, growing up a Jew, being beaten up by kids in, in school for being a Jew. Uh, at one point, they're banging his head against the chalkboard, calling him a dandruffy yid, you know. Uh, then um, being, growing up with his father, who is incredibly abusive, as well as, as loving and encouraging, but this, this kind of mercurial figure, and, and Misha doesn't know what will happen the next day with, with his father. Uh, and growing up with uh, a mother who dies very, very early on from cancer. So I think there's, and growing up in a country that dies pretty quickly, the Soviet Union that dies and is replaced with this horrifying uh, oligarchical system to which Misha belongs as the son of the 1,238th richest man in Russia. But also growing up completely conflicted about who he is. Misha has, like Oblomov, he has so many good ideas. He loves the idea that, he loves New York. He loves the multiculturalism of New York. Um, he, he, he pays lip service to democracy. He thinks it's a great idea. But in the end, he, he can't really help anyone because he can't help himself. 
he is incredibly self, uh, self, self-satisfied, self-aggrandizing, but in the end, he is incredibly unhappy. And the book, I won't give away how it ends, of course, but I think it ends on a fairly unhappy note because I think somebody like Misha, even though he can eat his way through the world and he can love his way through the world, ultimately somebody like him cannot find a measure of peace with himself. And to me, that's the saddest kind of character and in some ways the funniest kind of character too because that pathos can be translated into, into a lot of literal belly laughs as far as Misha is concerned. And also that sadness that is within him makes him a character that we like as yeah. well. Yeah. It, it, it earns our sympathy. He earns our sympathy. Yeah, I, I think this is a trick that a lot of good writers employ. I think, uh, going back, of course, Confederacy of Dunces. Uh, O'Reilly, uh, Ignatius Riley is, is one of the most lovable characters around, and at the same time, he's so pugnacious. He's so... Uh, he lives for conflict and, and a kind of uh, verbal violence that, that he directs toward everyone around him. Uh, but I think that's also a recognizable kind of character. There's, there are people we know who are like this, whether they're incredibly overweight or not. Uh, there are people who are larger than life, who take up more space psychically, mentally, than, 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 than you or I or, or, or anybody, or, or the people that write about them in a way. So I think in a way, Misha is my, I, it's, <laughs> if I was more outgoing, if I was more hungry for life, and I'm fairly hungry, but not that hungry, uh, if I was more expansive, and in many ways, maybe even if I was more loving and more able to, to be hurt more uh, and to take all the hurt that's directed uh, and, and to turn it into a, a, fe- a feast, you know, to eat everything in sight and to love everything in sight, this is who I would sort of be. So in a way, Misha, I think, by the end of the book, Misha becomes much more attractive, I think, to the reader than Jerry Steinfarb. The, uh, the, uh, the Russian Jewish writer in America, some call him the Jewish Nabokov, who, uh, you know, just, uh, it turns out, is, is, a, is a complete monster, you know. So uh, it's interesting. This is not an autobiographical book, I think, and yet not in the way the first book was. And yet I think there are, there are certainly shades of me even in this, in this grotesquely overweight guy. There are a lot of fantasy elements in this novel. I, there's a country that I can't find on the map anywhere. Of course, I might be among the 19% of Americans who would <laughs> point at, at one of those pointy-shaped countries. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you use fantasy. And, and it seems to me, too, you are somewhat uh, prescient in, in you. There's a certain amount of prescience that must have gone into this in the way that what went back when you were writing this the way the novel plays out reality has happily or unhappily i followed okay. suit well the weirdest thing is you know i had this whole i started the book right before 911 and i had uh, the whole thing the whole plot was outlined there were some changes of course as we went along but you know it was about Halliburton <laughs> it was about Kellogg Brown and Root which is the subsidiary of Halliburton that that runs a lot of these countries into the ground that, that overbills overcharges everyone in sight currently overcharging us in Iraq uh, it's about uh, uh, the smugness of, of America's foreign policy and the way it's designed it, the short-sightedness of it in terms of cozying up to these uh, oil-rich regimes and the part of the book involved an entire skyline being obliterated and I, I started writing that right before 9-11. And, of course, after 9-11, I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, I better, what the hell am I writing about? But in the end, after I left those countries and I was, you know, uh, nearly killed, nearly kidnapped, all these different things, and I was so happy to return to the safety of New York, 
But as the years went on, as we began to invade all these you know, countries around the world, and I started to realize that Absurdistan, in a way, had followed me home. And that Absurdistan wasn't even really a country that I had made up, but more of a frame of mind, uh, more of a state of being, and more of a way of conducting policy and a way of dealing so on such a cruel, cruel level with, with people around the world. And I think when I witnessed, when I was in these countries, what, I, what stuck in my mind most was, was the cruelty of people, man toward man, man toward nature, man toward animal. And after I returned to the United States, uh, after 9-11, I saw so much of that being replicated here. And, and it moved me. And it was this, writing this book, there were, there were moments of intense sadness because I felt that I wasn't just writing fantasy. I wasn't really, this wasn't so much of, when we write, so much of it is escapist in a sense. We want to get away from where we are. But where we are, where, we, where I was when I wrote this, began to mirror the, the country I was writing about so much. The headlines each day would become more and more like my book. Uh, the, 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 what I was just talking about, Cheney returning to Kazakhstan and praising their form of government. You know, this is something that, <laughs> that would definitely have made its way into Absurdistan. In a way, I think it is an Absurdistan. And it, it is shocking. So for me, you know, V.S. Naipaul recently went on. He, our favorite literary curmudgeon was going on about how um, fiction doesn't really have a role to play because the world we live in partly is changing so quickly that only nonfiction can really keep up with it. I, it's just such nonsense. I think we have such a responsibility to, as, as fiction writers to document the world around us uh, and to make to really connect with the reader in a way that nonfiction sometimes has trouble connecting, not always. There's some brilliant nonfiction, of course, but in a way that isn't just for until the next news cycle, but, but for years to come. And I think what writers have to do is we have to leave uh, Brooklyn, you know, where we all live. We have to leave, um, what is it in LA? Uh, not Santa Monica, well, Santa Monica as well. Uh, we have to go out into the world and we have to sort of uh, experience what's going on. We need more culturally literate writers, not people who, are, who know what the world is really like and who can translate that into, into fiction that can really captivate people. And there are writers, there are brilliant fiction writers like that. David Mitchell, for example, is a wonderful example of that. Uh, this is somebody who is so well-traveled uh, and so well-read and who is able to write about the world of the past, the present, and the future in such moving terms uh, and in a way that is, you know, a lot of his fiction, I think, is very politically charged. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't hit you over the head with it. It just explains the world to you in a way that you wouldn't get from just reading uh, the headlines or reading even nonfiction about these different subjects that he tackles. There are lots of political implications in your book, of course, and they're very well handled. It's, it's powerful and, and underhanded at the same time. You know, our, our country, we're currently engaged in an effort to spread democracy around the world. It's an admirable goal, to be sure, but, you know, democracy is not peanut butter, and it's, it's harder to spread. So <laughs> t tell us a little bit about some of the direct political parallels. Were you thinking of Darfur when you wrote this book? Because it's it, it, I, I was reading it this your book this morning and, and listening to the radio. I'm going, wait, 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 where am I? Where am I? Uh, that's interesting. No, Darfur, of course, when I was started writing this book, Darfur wasn't in the headlines, so I wasn't thinking about Darfur uh, at the time. I think the, it was the process, the genocide was starting, but it wasn't uh, uh, par uh, paramount to, to what I was writing. I was actually thinking about a lot of the um, ethnic conflicts that had erupted after the collapse of communism. 
the immediate example, of course, was what happened in Yugoslavia, uh, the demolition of Bosnia, as the world stood by, um, and where Kellogg, Brown, and Root, the, uh, the subsidiary of Halliburton, was also present. Uh, I was thinking of uh, what had happened in Rwanda. And more to the point, I was thinking what had happened to some of these actual absurdistans, uh, for example, um, the fight between Azerbaijan and, uh, and uh, Armenia, the terrible conflict there that had cost so many lives and that was completely ignored by the West, uh, the different uh, fighting that goes on in the Republic of Georgia between different factions that has decimated one of the loveliest countries in the world, a country as beautiful as Tuscany and, and as, uh, uh, as vibrant as any other place that you'll find in the world. Uh, and also something that's been completely ignored uh, by the West. So, and, you know, be going to these countries, meeting people, um, meeting also Americans who are there for one very simple reason, or, or, or West, or people from Europe as well, uh, which is to extract as much as possible from the country and to leave the, the dry husk of it uh, behind. Uh, the example I always talk about is, you know, being at the Hyatt pool and having a hooker come up to me and saying, are you from Galliburton? And, and I said to her, uh, no, I'm just a, a Russian writer. And she said, phew, I hate Russian writer. I only like Halliburton. <laughs> you know? And things like that, when they happen, they, they just they focus your attention on just how warped everything is. And, and how, look, uh, it's not America's responsibility, frankly, to make sure that, that all countries subscribe to a form of democracy. But we're not making things any better. And when, the, when America makes a big stink about a country like Belarus, which has a terrible dictator, but absolutely no oil whatsoever. And at the same time, invites leaders from Azerbaijan to visit or goes over to Kazakhstan and praises, uh, praises their, <laughs> their democratic evolution. People aren't stupid. And they realize that America is not a country to be trusted and that America is only in it for the oil, only in it for the money, only in it to enrich the coffers of, of its own oil elite in conjunction with the oil elites in those countries. So it's such a short-sighted policy. And when you look at countries like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, which are Muslim countries, uh, where you could have so much, such a rise in Islamic fundamentalism, it's already happening in, in neighboring Uzbekistan, uh, it is so short-sighted to just play to the interests of the select group of people and let the rest of the country go to hell. So. It's, it's, we're, we're corrupt, we're venal, but more, more than anything, I think, as, as, as citizens of New Orleans and other parts of the country have recognized, the government is, our government is incompetent. It is unable to deal with uh, the world as it is right now. It is unable to meet the challenges of what it means to be a, a major power in the world right now. I almost wish, uh, I don't know, the Albanian government would take over our own. You know, They'd probably do a better job at this point. Tell us a little bit about a fascinating uh, concept that you uh, call log cap. Ah. I love log cap. Log cap is great. Yeah, log cap is great. Um, log cap was a contract uh, that the U.S. Army uh, gives out, which, um, which Kellogg, Brown, and Root has won consecutively, which allows them, basically, they can build the government for whatever they build. Let's say they build a military base, right? They get a percentage of the costs, no matter what the costs are. So in my book, for example, they build a, uh, an outhouse, a Texan-style outhouse out of marble. You know. Let's say the outhouse costs $7 million. They build that to the government, and they get a percentage of profit no matter what. So I think maybe it's 3%. So let's say you get 3% profit, right? Wouldn't it make more sense to build something for $7 million than $700,000, right? So it's a complete scam. It's a complete scam. Uh, and uh, in my book, it plays a major role because an entire country is pretty much destroyed over a log cap. Uh, 
uh, over over uh, the profitability of rebuilding a country uh, or rebuilding certain infrastructure or building American bases, et cetera, et cetera. So I had a lot of fun with LockCap. I had a lot of fun researching it. There's so much stuff. There's so much uh, books out there, so many books out there that are that are really fascinating to deal with this with this subject. But also, you know, you go out into the world, and Halliburton is a real presence. This is this is a this is a company that has its hooks, that has its tentacles in, in all around the world. I mean, a lot has been said about it, but I think just going out there and and hanging out with with drunk Halliburton workers is is a hoot. I mean, it's it's something else. It's it's really happening tell, around the world. Tell us a little bit about some of your experiences and your travels and. If you don't mind me asking, <clears throat> uh, how do you afford all this travel? I mean, this is not cheap. Well, it's not actually. I when I travel, I, I keep costs down. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I do articles. For example, I, I write for Travel and Leisure. Sometimes they sent me to Azerbaijan, which was really great. Really? Yeah. You know, I'm sort of. I think I'm one of their uh, their writers who they they allow they, they send to parts of the world that, that aren't necessarily high on the tourist agenda. You know, I, I don't <laughs> no, see New Jersey dentist showing up uh, to Azerbaijan, but I think it's you know uh, I love the editor there. She's very good. Uh, my editors there are very nice about letting me go. I was just in Brazil, for example, and I went to a favela. I wrote about a favela, you know, uh, which is not something you're going to find uh, very often in these kinds of travel magazines. So I, I really enjoy working with them. Um, but I, when I travel, because I speak Russian, I don't. I, I'm not gouged as much as, as as other people. But there is that kind of absurdity. I remember once I showed up to a hotel and. Um, a woman said, and this is, again, an instance where the book mirrors reality so much that, that I do hope, you know, Oprah brings me on the air and spanks me in public. Uh, I, I show up at a hotel, and the woman behind the counter says, you know, it's, there's a room for you, and it's $100. It's reserved for you. And I said, uh, all right. And she said, but there's a hooker waiting for you up there in your room. And I said, well, thank you so much, but I, I really don't want the hooker. She said, then it's $200 without the hooker. And I said, it's double the price without the hooker. And she said, well, now i got to find her a place to sleep, which I thought was great. It was so absurd. And there's almost a humanistic touch to it. You know, she's, she's looking out for the hooker. And that went almost verbatim into absurdistan. So what I do is, uh, my mode is this. I show up. I'm pretty strange looking. I'm small and furry. Nobody knows what the hell's going on. You know, who am I? Am I an Iranian terrorist? Am I a, a Caspian businessman? Am I some kind of... Uh, some kind of Jewish guy trying to, you know, connect with the Jewish community. What the hell's going on? Who am I? And people are very interested, and they come up, and they tell me their life stories, and they just, they talk and talk and talk, and then they try to, they all have these incredibly harebrained schemes. Uh, There's one guy who wanted to import geese from Tajikistan and sell them on the Israeli market, you know. Everyone has some kind of weird scam that they want to perpetuate, and they see me as a means of doing that. So... I just, you know, I'm almost like a, like a video cassette recorder. I just sit there and, and I just take it all in. And then it gets processed into, into fiction. It's the Chauncey Gardner effect. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell us a little bit. One of the things that you do quite well in this book is, it, is to create a plot mm-hmm. uh, amidst all these kind of chaotic travels. So as you, I, I'm curious, when you wrote this book, did you outline this? Did you just spew it, or what happened? Well, actually, what I do is I, I'm a very careful outliner. I have, it's like a movie script in some ways. There's maybe 74 points. 74 things will happen, you know. Uh, and in the end, uh, I pretty, the characters in the end decide what stays and what goes um, because they really start to speak for themselves. They develop their own personality traits. So, I, you know, in a way, I'm just sort of stewarding them, shepherding them along, and, and they decide what goes on the page. Uh, and then, of course, is the editorial process. I have a great editor at Random House, Daniel Meneker, who's a great writer himself. 
Uh, he wrote a hilarious book called The Treatment about a renegade Cuban Freudian psychoanalyst. It's absolutely hysterical. So he was very good about knowing what proportion of humor to non-humor to use, for example, and, and which scenes would have to go. He really wielded a machete in terms of cutting through the, the froth of this book and, and keeping it in the really good parts. And then also one of my favorite writers, probably one of my, my favorite writers of my generation today, is Akhil Sharma, an Indian writer who should be much more well-known than he is. He's published in The New Yorker several times. Uh, and he has a brilliant book called An Obedient Father, which is the story of an Indian civil servant who sleeps with his nine-year-old daughter. Talk about turning off uh, a major portion of your audience, but it is the <laughs> most brilliant book, I think, that's been written in a long time. And what I do when I write this, when I wrote uh, Absurdistan, is I just gave this book to Akhil. And I said, Maestro, you know, show me, show me the way here. And he had so many brilliant ideas, especially in terms of condensing things and letting, um, letting the, the good things shine and cutting away a lot of, a lot of uh, froth, a lot of stuff that really wasn't important to the book. So I'm really lucky to live in New York in the beginning of the 21st century because literature may be suffering a lot, uh, quite a decline certainly in this country, but there are so many brilliant writers around me that I can just walk out the door, meet somebody for coffee, talk to them about their work, my work, and get so much out of it and come back so with so many new ideas. So I, I, it's really fortunate for me. We've been speaking with Gary Steingart. His new novel is Absurdistan. Thank you for speaking with us, Gary. Thank you. It was wonderful to, to meet you. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.